A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian politician about how they live out their faith in the mucky business of politics. You may well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and of course you'd be right, but then again, so is everything else. And I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are engaged in politics in an informed way. Today, we get to speak to Kate Forbes. She's the Finance Secretary for the Scottish National Party in Government in Scotland and a Christian. We're going to talk about how she finds talking about her faith in public and how the different characters and views within the SNP work together. All of that to come, but first, Cara Bentley has a roundup of some of the stories you might have missed. Well, the Church of England Diocese of Oxford has condemned the actions of some clergy who have taken part in these Insulate Britain protests on the M25. Whether there'll be any cars to stop soon, we will see. But the climate protests have resulted in arrests. Now, the diocese said it had sympathy with the intention, but not the nature. Down the M4, evangelicals in the church in Wales have made three requests to the denomination since it voted to bless same-sex marriages. They've asked for a Conservative bishop to represent their interests on the bench, for clarification on the conscience clause and what it would mean and look like to opt out, and assurances that a bill on same-sex marriage within the church won't come before five years. And Christian campaigner Heidi Crowter has lost her High Court case, arguing that the current law on abortion discriminates against people with Down syndrome. She said that she's not going to give up and that William Wilberforce did not give up his fight against slavery. But Tim, I guess the big story is that everyone wants fuel, but hardly anyone can get it. Well, yes, I'm experiencing nostalgia overload. All this panic buying at the petrol pumps brings back memories of the great toilet roll stampede of 2020. Is it a sign of selfish behaviour, making sure I'm all right at your expense? Well, perhaps, but it's surely a sign of the anxiety that blankets our world at the moment. After 18 months of pandemic, we're feeling shaky and insecure. Now, we might blame the government, Brexit, oil companies, COVID, the way that our just-in-time supply chains are organised. But whatever the cause, it is extremely humbling. We spend our lives building what we think is security, whether in possessions, money in the bank, relationship, to home with a door that we can close on the world. But ultimately, we discover that we cannot be sure of what tomorrow will bring and have no power to make it so. The Bible, with characteristic bluntness in James's letter to fellow first century Christians, puts it like this. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. How difficult it is to accept that we are ultimately not in control of our lives and to find the kind of peace in that realisation, while at the same time doing all we can to mitigate the spread of COVID and get on with our lives. At its core, our anxiety is driven by our fear of death. When life ticks along, we can pretend that we're in charge of our own identities and our own destinies. And when something major comes along, we're forced to fall back on our inner resources. The Christian speaker and writer Jay John wrote at the start of the pandemic that our current mood exposes the nature of our morality. Our morality can be profound, coming from deep convictions inside us, or it can be superficial because it's based on social conventions, a veneer of behaviour that disintegrates in the presence of fear. In parts of the world where people live alongside disease, death and uncertainty much more closely than we do, 
spiritual faith tends to play a bigger part in people's lives. Here, we have the palliative of cosy Western lives to Connors that we don't need any of that God stuff. But faith in Christ is not a crutch for a broken leg, something to hold us up when we need it and to be cast away when we can once again cope with life. It is a realignment of our attitudes, a deep spiritual recognition that we're not our own saviors and that we do not control the universe. We do not have to rely on ourselves for meaning, love and redemption. Instead, Christians believe we are so loved that the one who does control the universe gave his life to enable us to live ours to the full and to free us from the fear of death that stalks our world. Yet this is all so far outside our society's shared cultural understanding that it is seen as out of touch and frankly bizarre. A recent Daily Express headline bellowed, end of the world, is coronavirus the prophesied plague in the book of Revelation? Well, it quoted some random people on Twitter who believe that the virus is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and then filed the story under the heading weird. Admittedly, Revelation, with its colourful imagery and sometimes obscure prophecies, is probably not the place to start to explore the richness of the Bible. If you want to find out more about the faith that is followed by two billion people around the world, maybe try one of the four Gospels instead. Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. They tell the story of Jesus' life. If you do, you will find that Jesus makes some pretty bold claims. He tells us that he's come to offer us life to the full and he's overcome the fears and troubles of the world, that he'll give us his peace as we walk through life's trials. Crucially, he does not tell us that we will avoid those trials. He himself faced death and knows what it is to experience that fear. Most of all, he offers a hope that one day there will be no more death or sorrow or pain. One day the whole of creation will be renewed and restored, and he invites us to share in that hope. So, as you sit in the queue for petrol, you are being offered something that will never run out, hope and peace. There is nothing vague about Jesus' claims. They are stark and unmistakable. They are, however, uncomfortable because he's telling you that you aren't in charge of you. But then again, you already knew that, didn't you? You were just too scared to admit it because what then? Well, the what then is that there isn't chaos. There is someone in charge and he loves you so much that he died for you. Sounds ridiculous? Well, as we are forced to reassess what really matters in our lives when everything we take for granted threatens to be stripped away surely these claims and the awesome promises that come from them are worth a second glance a mucky business with tim farron this week our guest is kate forbes the child of christian missionary parents and now the second most senior politician in scotland after nicola sturgeon kate is the cabinet secretary for finance and the economy for the scottish government and that's a role that came as a bit of a surprise for her, because in February 2020, she was given less than a day's notice to deliver the Scottish budget to Parliament following the sudden resignation of her predecessor. Kate has been the SNP member of the Scottish Parliament for Sky, Lock Harbour and Badenoch since 2016, but grew up in India before Scotland. Well, we're going to hear more about that in a minute. But most importantly, Kate, welcome. It's a delight to have you with us. It's a delight to join you. Well, Kate, I'm going to ask you a simple question, first of all. Tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing and about the role your parents have on, uh, had in forming your, um, your beliefs. But in particular, tell us about how you became a Christian, what Jesus means to you. Thanks. Well, I had a very strange upbringing that's quite difficult to categorise. And it's interesting listening to your introduction because my parents always disagreed with the characterisation of them as missionaries. I think growing up, reading stories of Hudson Taylor and Elizabeth uh, Elliot and others, 
my sense of missionaries were of these brave and courageous souls that ended up being martyred for their faith. And instead, we were a fairly ordinary family that found ourselves in India because my dad was involved with uh, Bible teaching and also he's an accountant. So he was managing the finances of a group of mission hospitals. So uh, actually just trying to balance the books and ensure that people were able to access free healthcare. So we felt quite far removed from the great missionary journeys of David Livingston and co. But that meant, of course, our upbringing was between countries and between cultures and between backgrounds. So I left age 10, my very safe and secure primary school, which was Gaelic medium education and arrived in India in a little, well, it wasn't little uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but perhaps little by Indian standards, a large city of Ludhiana in the Punjab to sit in a classroom with 60 other kids in uh, big, long rows where if you got um, poor test results, you would uh, feel the pain of a ruler on, on the palm of your hand. So it was a total clash. And whilst obviously I had the safety and security of my own family, it felt like everything had changed. And as a little 10 year old with an inquisitive mind, I asked why and what was my guarantee in a world of sinking sands and of, of shifting sands. And through a period of, of, of questioning and obviously being confronting, confronted by different religions, friends who had a different faith, different background, different culture, I, I realised that there was only one thing that was the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And there was only one thing that was consistent between Scotland and India, and that was God. And at the same time, we uh, lived through the, the Gujarat earthquake, which some of you will remember. And that's something that we that we felt and we saw firsthand it's hugely traumatic, hugely traumatic for those that were involved, but traumatic for, for a young girl seeing mass devastation, so many thousands of lives lost, and that sense that tomorrow wasn't guaranteed. And so a mixture of, of, of trying to find consistency in life, of realising that my tomorrow wasn't guaranteed, was what brought me to Christ. And realising, actually, it didn't really matter whether I liked him or not, what mattered is whether I, I, I recognised him as, as Lord and Saviour. And that for me was, was the turning point in my own personal faith. That's amazing. And what sort of age was that? That'd be around the age of 10? Uh, it, it was probably about 11, actually. Yeah. So uh, just before my teens. Yeah. Uh, epic. And there's, there's no doubt that, you know, God takes seriously the commitment made by anybody at any age. And um, that is a fantastic account. Now, it, you grow up, you leave India at what age? 15 years old. And so, and uh, you ended up studying here um, or back in Scotland and you found yourself working in finance, am I right? That's right. So we, we came back to Scotland, then moved around a little bit again. And just incidentally, going back to my question of, of coming to faith, mm. obviously that faith has been challenged at every point. So the faith of that 11 year old has been challenged consistently through the years. And it needs to be challenged. Um, so it's not a faith that hasn't changed since age 11. But yes, studied in, in Scotland and then went to study history in, in Cambridge. I went down to 
uh, England, um, have many close friends from that period of time, and then ended up working for a bank in London and training as a chartered accountant. Was there ever a moment you thought you also would be a missionary accountant? I'd always vowed never to follow in my father's footsteps, <laughs> and that included accountancy. Uh, and um, I don't know how I ended up there, but um, we did. But, you know, aside from the missionary element, we were always taught as children that, and then through through adulthood, that you had one life and every second counted mm. and every second mattered. Mm. And your aim and your objective was the sense of responsibility and duty that much had been given to us and therefore much would be expected from us. So actually, irrespective of whether... We, we were living in an unpaid fashion, like my dad was for most of his adult life, or working in a bank. It boiled down the sort of priorities of life to the same things, which was trying to serve others, mm. uh, often not as well as we should have. But that was certainly the, the big objective that I was, I was passed down from my parents. And so something led you to decide that politics was for you. What was it? Uh, accident. Um, so I was minding my own business, really, uh, working in as, a, as an accountant, and the opportunity came to stand for election, to be part of the selection process. And truth be told, I really didn't expect to be selected. Mm. So I was up against some fairly uh, impressive characters, uh, some former or current councillors, people who had been around the party for a long time. And I looked at myself thinking, too young, too immature, too uh, little life experience, but went for it. Uh, the, the door was opening, and, and I always feel that when a door is opening, you've got to come up with a really good justification for not at least trying to go through it. And I had no great justification. And I'd also been you know, very clear that it's easy to talk about changing the world or pontificating on the great... Um, flaws in, 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 in political policy but to actually step up and do something about it is a lot harder so that was a challenge and um, it's a challenge I wanted to, to, to see if I could rise to so I stood for selection and was selected as the candidate somewhat um, out of the blue. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're talking with Kate Forbes, a Christian, the finance secretary for Scotland and a member of the Scottish Parliament and um, Kate, I checked with the producers of this podcast, and although you know BBC are obviously our major rival, um, I'm allowed to mention the fact that I heard your Nick Robinson interview, which I thought was outstanding. Um, and I, I know I would have had to get into a time capsule for this for the case, but I kind of think I wish I'd listened to you being interviewed by Nick Robinson before I'd uh, myself wandered into certain bear pits when I was um, leader of the Liberal Democrats, and indeed, indeed, since you're very much in the public eye. You're not shy about talking about your faith. You do it in a very respectful and appropriate way. But that obviously invites tricky questions. How do you prepare for them and how do you deal with them? I think the first step is to know what you believe and why. Those of us in the church or those of us with Christian friends often just accept truth without ever querying it. And I realised the more involved I got in the messiness of the world or in, in the murky business of, of politics, that you really need to know why you believe and what you believe so that when it comes to 
staking your claims, you know why. And it's a lot easier to defend a position that you inherently believe than defending a position that you just think Christians should hold. Mm. I think that's the first thing. But the second thing is, you've got to figure out how to build a bridge to your listeners. And by the way, I'm almost uh, 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 you know, embarrassed about going through this because I feel like I've made lots of mistakes along the way and I've got lots of things wrong. And actually, if the Nick Robinson interview was anything to go by, it was the result of feeling like I hadn't got answers right in previous interviews. Mm. So, you know, it, it, there is trial and error and, and, you know, Sometimes you connect, sometimes you don't. But it's how, what, what relevance does the gospel have to 21st century UK? You know, h- how would you sit next to somebody in a train and explain why you believe what you believe? Because if it doesn't resonate with them, then it's not going to make sense on a podcast or in a media interview. So I think that's the second thing is what is the world out there hearing when we speak? You've got to make sure they're hearing what you intend to say rather than hearing something because of all the baggage and the filtering that goes on with Christian views. And those would be the, the, the two, two things. And, and it is just, it just practice. And like I say, I have got things so wrong in town halls in the past. I've got things wrong in media interviews. I've got things wrong. We're just speaking to friends and family. And I think through God's grace, sometimes things connect in ways that I can't control in and of myself. Yeah, he absolutely he is refining us. But um, I think that was great wisdom, which I think many people can learn an awful lot from, including, I'm sure, our, our listeners. Let's just look at the kind of practicality. So obviously I see um, politics and, uh, and, and the, the leading politicians from Scotland very much from a Westminster angle. And so I see plenty of your colleagues, some of whom are good friends of mine um, from the SNP, and they seem an interesting bunch, and I mean that in a really kind way. Um, first of all, um, there there are some, I think, within the SNP in Westminster who feel almost to be kind of almost militant secularists. And on the other hand, I can think of a number of people who are committed Bible-believing Christians, Roman Catholics. There are people who, uh, who who you know deeply hold their faith. How do you think they rub along? How do you do you think that there's compromise? on the Christian side that's uh, too much of a compromise? Do you see any compromise from the other side? One of the things that's always attracted me about the SNP is genuinely how diverse it is. Now, the the public characterisation of the SNP may not present that, but I've always seen it uh, from branch members all the way through to the Westminster group, that there's a diversity because there is a, a primary objective in terms of Scotland's constitutional future. But that means that people of diverse political views and diverse backgrounds and diverse, perhaps, religious views can come together to support that that, that objective. Now, in government, inevitably, you need to settle on particular policy positions. And as you and I both know, compromise is the name of the political game. You know, it's part and parcel. And all of those individuals will be figuring out where their red lines are. But ultimately... That it attracts a diversity of background and of view. Uh, and that's why I feel like there is a tolerance internally for me and whatever I, 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 I present. And the same will be true of, of the Westminster Group. With any political party, there's robust debate in private. 
you know, I imagine those groups meetings in Westminster, I'm not usually a member of those group meetings, are very robust in the same way that the SNP group in Holyrood is, has robust debate, as that, and that should be the case. And then there's a united front. I wonder really, just as we get towards the end, I mean, um, to paraphrase David Cameron, I was the future once, and you definitely are, I would say, from my perspective, somebody who was a, a very... Uh, upward vertical career trajectory that's what it feels like um and you're certainly in a very very senior role at a relatively young age i just wonder if you wouldn't mind you're know, just reflecting how do you think christians um, should think about ambition in politics is it okay for a christian in politics to be ambitious for themselves and for their future thanks very much tim and i think you're um, unfairly kind because if anybody looks at my career they'll see that I'm where I am by accident, or there's another word perhaps that those of us of faith would use in such circumstances. But in terms of ambition, I think that Christians should absolutely 100% be ambitious for excellence. They should be ambitious for being the best they can be, not because they get praise, but because we've all been given gifts and we'll give an account for how we have used those gifts. And you know, I am one of my all time heroes is Eric Liddell. My favorite film is Chariots of Fire. And he says in the film, I don't know if he said it in reality, that when he when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. He was made to run and he ran well, but he had his own red lines, which in his case mm. was running on, on, on a Sunday. So we all need our, our lines, but God has given each of us gifts and he does not want us to keep those gifts in a blocked box he wants us to use those gifts and in using them so long as we are sending the praise back at him and not claiming the the, the, the credit for ourselves and becoming proudful and and prideful sorry and, and conceited then I think we have a duty to be ambitious and we ultimately need to follow God's leading William Wilberforce of course famously decided that thus far no further in terms of his own political career because he could best serve at that level so the ambition is for being excellent, not for status or perhaps for position. Kate, that's a great answer. We're kind of run out of time now, which leads me, first of all, say massive thank you to you. Great and wise and thoughtful answers. Uh, secondly, I must apologise. I should have started off by congratulating on your re recent marriage. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm almost as a bit most impressive of all was the, 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 the wedding photographs at Ross County FC. Uh, I thought they were especially cool. So, look, thanks for having us. Good luck with everything in the future. You've been a real blessing and we are really grateful to you for your time. Thank you so much, Tim. I think of all the achievements, finding a man to take me on is probably the, the <laughs> most excellent of them all. And can I just say that those wedding in those wedding photos, I scored the goal um, leaving my my husband far behind. So Excellent. there we go. Thanks for having is it, me. Is it, a, is it a shared love, Ross County? Well, it was. It's next door to the church, <laughs> so it was a great location for some more private photographs because it was it was enclosed, um, and I'm very grateful to them for letting me letting me use the the pitch. Tremendous, Kate. Pleasure to have you. See you soon. Thank you. Each week, we answer a question from you, the listener, about how Christianity and politics can work together. Maybe you're thinking about a particular issue, or you're not sure why people disagree on a certain policy. If you've got a question, please write it in an email to farron at premier.org.uk.
This week, we've got a question from Tom. Hi, Tim and Cara. Thanks for the brilliant podcast. My name's Tom Waring. I'm a church leader in Gloucestershire. Uh, My question to you is this. You seem, Tim, publicly at least, pretty buoyant and positive about politics, despite all the knocks you've had. Have you got any tips for us on how to avoid becoming cynical as we watch, engage in and pray for politics? Thanks. Well, thanks, Tom. I guess the first thing I'd say is that maybe it is a veneer, <laughs> but I do my I do my best to be authentic. And I think in in the end, I, I guess I try to follow my own advice. And if I was to sum up um, our message, I guess, from uh, the Imuki Business podcast is that we think that Christians shouldn't panic about politics because, look, we know it's all going to end well. But at the same time, we should care and care deeply. And if you realise that you know, what happens in this particular political season, um, whether you love or hate Brexit, whether you uh, love or hate this government, whether you love or hate the idea of an independent Scotland, whatever it might be, whatever the conclusion, win, lose or draw, and it's rarely a draw, um, you are going to live to fight another day. And certainly um, God is sovereign throughout. And so you can trust in the one who is going to make all things well. I think the end, in the end, it's also important to say we're all flawed. Uh, and if your expectations are that politics will bring about perfection, yes, you'll be disappointed and you'll go around looking disappointed. If you know politics is populated like by sinners, just like me, then we know that, you know, we're going to be disappointed. So you're kind of ready in advance. That doesn't mean you can't change things. And for me, I guess the, the ability to serve people is what makes politics live and fresh to me. I often describe myself as post-ambitious. I have no desire to be leader or a minister or anything like that again, but I love serving the people that I'm elected to represent in Westmoreland, and I love serving them on a day-to-day basis in some of the kind of mo- most basic and, you might say, mundane aspects of their lives. That feels to me like serving God in a small way, and we can all do that in whichever uh, line that we happen to be in. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, as we come to the end of our time together this week, let's close in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we are called to cast all our anxieties upon you because you care for us. And you also tell us to bring our day-to-day concerns, um, maybe trivial things, and the things that are important to us in our lives. And for many people today and this week, Getting enough fuel to get to work, to get the kids to school, to get to hospital is a hugely important thing. So we just pray for people to be able to get the fuel they need to do the things that they need to do. Even more than that, we pray for all of us as a society in this country and further afield that we would put our confidence in the one thing that will not let us down, uh, that is eternally certain, um, that we will place our faith in Jesus Christ and those of us who are Christians would remember that during trying times, um, that there is indeed instability, uncertainty, plans that change overnight and that can throw us uh, off balance. Let us remain um, standing in our faith in the Lord Jesus and look to you every day for our sustenance. Lord, we want to thank you for Kate Forbes. We thank you for the plainness and clarity um, that she uses in explaining her faith in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the position that she holds and the fact that she has been protected by you in that place. Bless her, we pray, encourage her and help her to continue to be a great witness to your glory. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks very much for listening. 
If you've got any feedback for the show, suggestions of guests, topics you want covered or questions, please email farron at premier.org.uk and we will be delighted to hear from you. Don't forget to subscribe so that other people can see the podcast. Next week, we'll be speaking to Carla Lockhart, the DUP MP for Upper Van. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.